Hey everybody, this is Real Me and Cole in a Movie Podcast co-host Joel Copling, and I am back after a couple weeks of silence. Hope you're all doing really well out there. Um, you know, I've got two episodes coming this week, so I'm I'm kind of grouping them into the next couple of days. I've got this episode on the best films of 2003 right now for you, and then tomorrow evening, as of this recording, I will have the best films of 2002 recorded with my friend Chad. And uh, yeah, I just figured that I would uh, give you all two now because I will be going back to work this weekend, which means that I'll be having a little bit of a of a fuller May, uh, quite a bit of a fuller May than I had of April, of course. And uh, so I will have two more episodes for you on the top 10 films of 2001 with my friend Aaron. And also on the best films of 2000 with returning guest Mark Dusick. Uh, he was the original guest on this show, but plans fell through. So I am here recording alone. Um, again, I hope you're all doing really well. Yes, I did mention that I'm going to be back at work. That is because Texas has started uh, reopening. It's not going to be like some automatic thing. Uh, and I am still remaining safe. We are going to be taking measures, including masks, gloves, social distancing at work so that we can keep everybody safe. But, um, you know, this is a decision that I made to go back just because I do need the income. And I know that that, you know, seems <laughs> a little bit like, you know, um, almost like a defeatist uh, kind of attitude right now, but... I need I need the money, you know. I don't I don't make very much money, and uh, so I am going back this weekend. Um, I think in terms of my nerves, I would be more nervous if Texas wasn't in a better position right now. Uh, we still have cases coming in of coronavirus, um, but it is much less, um, much much fewer than it has been in recent weeks. We've been making progress in the past couple of weeks as a state overall in terms of numbers of active cases versus numbers of recovered patients. So I think I would be more nervous about this if we weren't in that state. Um, if I was in, you know, uh, a much less lucky state, then I would be not going back to work right now. And if my workplace was much less accommodating to people than I probably wouldn't be going back. But um, movie trading company and vintage stock uh, on a larger scale, the company that owns ours has been incredibly fair to us. Um, you know, there have been uh, reports of some states like threatening workers um, with, you know, like lack of unemployment that has not come up Um at, at least at our work, there are workplaces that are doing that, and it's really bad. Our workplace is not, so I did feel safe to go back. Um, but others, you know, I won't get into it too much, but others that I work with are not uh, so confident. So I know that there are some not coming back. But for me, yes, the, the choice was pretty clear that as of right now, I do need to go ahead and go back to work. Um, so I'll be doing that this weekend. 
And uh, just wanted to let you all know that that means that just because of that, there's a lot less of a schedule to the last couple of episodes than I wanted. Um, and it also depends, of course, upon the schedules of my uh, of my guests. So anyway, uh, that's the update as of now here. Um, I hope that everybody's doing okay uh, wherever you are. And, uh, you know, just stay inside if that's your prerogative, just, just do that. Just keep doing that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably just best to stay inside wherever you are. Honestly, that's what I have been doing for April. And that's what I plan to do other than work. I'm just going to be coming home. So yeah, just, uh, just remain safe. You know, don't go back to theaters just cause they're reopening or they might be reopening where you are. Uh, you know, keep, keep the patterns up that you're going, you you have, um, and I'll be doing the same thing, you know, other than work. So that is the deal. And again, I am doing, uh, alone right now, my picks for the best films of 2003. Now this was for the Academy, the year of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the King, uh, Peter Jackson's epic, uh, conclusion to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, which took home every single Oscar that it was nominated for. And that was a lot. That was 11 Oscars. It took home 11 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, many, many more. Um, so you'll have to wait to find out whether or not The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King makes my list. Uh, but for now, I can start with number 10 on my list. And that is Mystic River. Now, this one comes from director Clint Eastwood, and it was written by Brian Helgeland um, based on the novel by Dennis Lehane. And this one stars Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and Kevin Bacon as a, as a trio of childhood friends who, when they were children, uh, their lives were shattered by a crime that left one of them traumatized for the rest of his life. Um and the narrative catches up with them about 25 years later when, once again, their lives are shattered by a tragedy. The Penn's character daughter, character's daughter, played by Emmy Rossum, uh, has been murdered. And uh, the question is, was it one of them? And this is much less just a simple murder mystery than an examination of trauma and of grief, guilt, and what pushes people to violence. And I think that it is bolstered by the performances by everybody here, not just Penn and Robbins, who both won Academy Awards for this film, as well as Bacon, uh, but also Marsha Gay Harden and Laura Linney, uh, as well as a really solid turn from Lawrence Fishburne as a detective. Uh, in charge of the case. Um, I adore this film. Uh, you know, it kind of uh, has had a bit of a critical piling on it uh, since it came out, just because of the question of whether or not, you know, question of how um, how manipulative it is in terms of its of its plot trajectory and in terms of it, of how it defines its characters and in terms of how it uses the situations to um, uh, to service the characters, or whether or not 
it's tradition it's you know centrally a character study and for me i think that it definitely tips in favor of a character study um uh, specifically of Penn's character and what he's pushed to, uh, the the degree to which he's pushed to those actions, um, and as well as everybody else here. Um, it's just a crushing film. And it is one of Eastwood's best that I've seen, I think. Um, I think it might be even better than his Oscar-winning Million Dollar Baby. Of course, this one was nominated for Best Picture alongside The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and a couple of others I might get into here. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I love it. Um, there's The performances are all completely emotionally precise. Uh, Laura Linney in particular is like devious and um, has a great monologue sequence. Marsha Gay Harden, also nominated for an Academy Award here, is fantastic. Uh, as well, and it just really showcases Eastwood's chops behind the camera, at least at this point in his career. I think he has slipped in recent years, but in this period of time when he was making movies, he was uh, just about second to very few um, in terms of capturing the angst of his characters without you know just steeping us in it. I think that that's really important. There's a um, there's a grit to this film that I think is really uh, fantastically um, carried across, and I, I just I love it. I think that the script is is wonderfully structured, very observant of its characters, and uh, yeah, the way that it reveals certain things to us is just is just tra uh, tragic and crushing, and I I can't say enough about it so somehow only number 10 uh clearly I, I have a lot of positive things to say about that but yes that is my number 10 is mystic river now that makes me move on to my number nine film which is a bit of a tonal uh shift <laughs> um and that is the comic biography american splendor from directors sherry springer berman and robert pulcini and that's uh, basically uh, tells of a year in the life of comic book hero everyman Harvey P. Carr, um, who's a comic book artist and uh, kind of an unusual comic book artist in the way that he preferred the everyday life of a person rather than uh, comic book superheroes or, as he would call it, um, fantasy you know, stuff. He wouldn't say the word stuff, but he might say another thing. Um, but man, I, this is, I should say that I did a lot of homework within the past week. And this is one of the films that I watched in preparation for this podcast. I wanted to do 2003 to pause real quick because it was a special year for me. It was the year that I, um, uh, that I found Roger Ebert's reviews and it was the year that I started uh, really paying attention to reviews as more than just ratings in a paper. And so I did a lot of uh, background work on this list. I watched about a dozen movies in the last week or so um, from the year 2003. And this is one that I had bought a, a little while ago and just hadn't gotten to. And I was completely taken with this 
very quiet, very observant, very dryly funny, but also very kind of acidic uh, and acerbic look into what an artist is faced with when he's simply faced with everyday disappointments and how he channels that into his artwork. And of course, what's really interesting about this film is that it mixes not only this fictional version of Picar played by Paul Giamatti with the real Picar uh, in interviews staged by the directors. Um, it also incorporates animation uh, to guide us along, the animation of sort of his comics in motion, if you will, um, with, with Picar once again voiced by Giamatti. And it also um, captures his budding romance with a very lonely woman uh, named Joyce Brabner, who is played, who appears as herself, and is also played by Hope Davis in a great performance. Um, and just what the two kind of go through from the point at which they meet until he meets minor fame on uh, in a series of extremely combative interviews on David Letterman's late night show, um, which are all uh, almost entirely used here and also restaged slightly um, from a different perspective with Giamatti filling in. But, uh, but the, the interviews reveal that this is just a guy who just doesn't like to take any nonsense. That's his, that isn't his style. He doesn't like taking any nonsense from anyone he enjoys his comfortable world. He seems extremely annoyed by the fact that he becomes popular for this comic book series, which of course is called American Splendor. Um, it's the basis of the screenplay, um, and as well as a book by Joyce Brabner called um, uh, Our Cancer Year, uh, a book series, I should say. And um, the screenplays by the directors, Berman and Pulcini. I, I just, I loved how how simple, quiet, but observant and uh, really funny in just a very, very, very self-deprecating way this movie was. It really surprised me. And uh, this isn't quite my hidden gem pick. I've got one coming up. Um, although there are a few movies on this list that certainly would qualify for that title. Uh, there's one other, there's one other movie I'm going to get into this, uh, get into in this first half of this episode that I, that I think is even more hidden and more, uh, gym like <laughs> if you will, and more worth seeking out a little harder to find. But, um, whatever the case, uh, I bought this movie. I hadn't, I hadn't watched, I think I bought it like a year and a half ago, never put it in really happy I did because it is really something else. And so, yes, that is my number nine is American Splendor. Now my number eight is much more well-known. It's another best picture nominee and it comes from director Sofia Coppola. And that is lost in translation. Now this one tells the story of a faded movie star played by uh, Bill Murray and a young woman who just feels neglected and alone in the world played by Scarlett Johansson, who form an unlikely bond after crossing paths in Tokyo. And uh, this is kind of the, for me, the start of Coppola's career uh, in terms of how I came into her career. 
because while she had directed The Virgin Suicides previously, that came out in 2000, I was not uh, familiar with that movie until I had seen Lost in Translation. I did, I have since gone back and watched The Virgin Suicides, and I've watched most of her movies since then, but none has come close really to this movie, which just settles into a lovely little romantic drama about lonely people who complete each other um, during this brief period of time when they're together. And the age the age difference is significant. Um, the Johansson character is, I think, 18. And of course, Murray is much older than that. Um, but the two basically form this relationship and it just comes across as completely naturalistic especially through the performances. It has this quiet energy, uh, really, really lovingly crafted on a visual level by cinematographer Lance Accord and director Coppola. Um, Accord is, of course, the cinematographer who, who later would shoot Where the Wild Things Are for director Spike Jones, and he has worked also with Coppola on other films. Um, and I just, I think that it is a, a tremendously beautiful film, really captures... Tokyo from an outsider's perspective it may be not it may be not the like um the definitive version of Tokyo on screen certainly not I don't know if an outsider's perspective could capture that but for for the purposes of two people in kind of a, a foreign uh space I think that it uh really does capture what it's like to be in a foreign space and to to um to connect on that level. I, I, I just, I love this film, uh, written and directed by Coppola with real, uh, you know, just real confidence and real, uh, humanity. And I just, I think it's a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, Murray was nominated at the Oscars for this performance. I think personally, you know, Sean Penn won for mystic river. I think it should have been Murray of the nominees who should have won, Best actor. I'll get to who I think actually should have won best actor later on in the show, but uh, but yeah, I I think that he's fantastic. Um, what he's able to do is I think that actually uh, Ebert put it really well in his review. It was his number two that year, and he put it really well that Murray plays somebody who could be funny and has kind of forgotten how to be, um, which is kind of an interesting twist for Murray to, to take on himself, often a very funny actor, um, and at his best has been extremely funny, um, in films like Groundhog Day and, and so forth. I, I, this is a performance in which he dials down the antics, um, and his comic persona to about maybe if he's usually at about an eight, uh, on, in terms of what he could be doing, with his with himself, um, not an eight in terms of talent, just an eight in terms of where the dial is on his persona. I think that he probably dials it down to about a three. He's still funny. He's still self self deprecating. He still has the Bill Murray energy, which is laid back, reserved comedy, but he's much less manic, um, and he's usually not super manic. So. That gives you an idea that he's basically become—he's basically become this character who is just still—he's still there. Uh, the comic persona is still there; it's just been turned down. And Johansson, really lovely performance. This was one of the first kind of big breakout roles for her. 
uh, she had done some stuff with that that had gained some some recognition up until this point, uh, notably Ghost World, a film that I will be seeing for the first time very soon. But here she really comes into her own. I think that she should have been nominated for this. She wasn't. Um, and that was a real oversight on the Academy's part. So, yeah, my number my number eight is Lost in Translation. It's very much worth checking out if you haven't seen this one yet. Um, you know, I mentioned that with uh, American Splendor that I would have a movie on here that is a real hidden gem. A movie that comes from a director who seemingly at this point only directs hidden gems because his movies don't have a tremendous amount of um, uh, distribution in the U.S., either in theaters or at home. And this one is kind of hard to find on DVD. Um, you can rent it. That's how I did it. You, you can rent it on iTunes, but it's kind of hard to find on DVD. Uh, the director is named Patrice Leconte. And he hails from France, as that name might suggest. Um, he directed one of my all-time favorite films, Must Year Hire, which came out in uh, 1990. It is my favorite film of 1990, yes, even above that movie. Um, and in 2003, he directed a film called Man on the Train. And this one stars Jean Rochefort, who, of course, is famous for being in the film The Umbrellas of Chabour. Uh, Rochefort plays a retired poetry teacher who is kind of lonely. Um, he's never really had many people to, to call his friend. He has his students who still admire him, but he doesn't see them very much anymore. And he kind of wishes he had a more exciting life. And one day he's coming off a train and happens to offer assistance to a bank robber played by legend legendary rock musician Johnny Halliday, um, who unfortunately has now passed away. Uh, he offers him assistance in the form of um, a place to stay before Halliday's character uh, performs his final robbery. He is on his way to retirement, but he wants to perform one final robbery, and that's it. That's all he wants to do, and then he'll retire. And for that purpose, he needs a place to stay that is separate from the other people in his in his crew. And Rochefort's character decides that he wants to do that. And over the course of this film's very spare 85 minutes or so without the end credits, uh, both men really determine that they would like to live the other's life. That for Rochefort, the excitement of bank robbery is almost too much to pass up so much so that he that he offers to be a part of it and meanwhile Halliday would really rather settle down into a life of comfort and uh you know just being alone and this man's spare existence in this fairly sizable mansion um that he's able that he's been able to uh you know, live in uh, these past few years of his life uh, would be his kind of perfect life. Um, so it very much is not a thriller. It's very much a study of these two men. And the performances from Halliday and Rochefort are, as, a, as it seems to be with Lacan, perfectly emotionally precise, um, particularly Halliday, uh, who, you know, is a or was a checkered actor. Um, he had 
he had made a lot of movies and he also made a giant uh, impact on the screen all the way back to La Diabolique. He was in the Pink Panther remake from 2006 even. And Rochefort, of course, is a French legend. So uh, these are two really good actors, really long acting resumes. And the movie becomes far less about the results of Halliday's robbery, uh, although it does in, it does climax with that. It becomes about the connection that these two men make with each other, the friendship that is developed over the course of this strange and wild weekend in which both men become accustomed to the other's, um, you know, uh, um, his their their personalities and and what and what have you so it's a fantastic movie really worth seeking out and that is my number seven is man on the train all right and now we're up to my number six which is a movie that i have seen many 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 times many times it is the film that i think whose whose actor i think should have won best actor um and that is Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. Now, this one stars Nicolas Cage as Roy, who is a con man. He's a career con man, and he is coming up on a job with his partner, Frank, played by Sam Rockwell, in what should have been nominated. So many things about this movie should have been nominated, I should say. It wasn't nominated for anything, and uh, that is a real bummer. Um, so he's coming up on a new job to try to get some money from a businessman played by Bruce McGill when all of a sudden into his life drops his apparent daughter from his estranged ex-wife. Uh, the daughter is played by Allison Lohman, uh, who we haven't seen in a while, uh, in a wide release since Gamer in general, since 2016's, uh, Officer Down, which is a very small VOD thing. Loman, really, please come back if you if you hear this. I'm sure that you won't, but please come back. It's a it's a great performance that she she gave in this. And this being a con story, uh, just know that not everything is as it seems. I'll just say that it's very much more complex, more emotionally complex than that seems to suggest. Um, but the 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 plot here, as written by um, Ted Griffin is uh, really complex and really works like clockwork to bring you a really like clever scheme that these ha- that these two have uh, tried to set up against this businessman, and also the ultimate story where all the uh, the, f- the pieces fit together perfectly. Um, by the time we reach the epilogue, and then you have an epilogue in which. Nothing is as it seems, and um, anymore, and it's just beautifully, beautifully filmed and beautifully performed by everybody involved. And I, I just, I love this movie. Um, I've seen it countless times. Um, I saw it when it came out in theaters, and I've seen it, you know, at least like on average once a year since then. So I've definitely seen it more than more than fifteen times uh, since its release seventeen years ago. Um, and it's just so perfectly plotted and, uh, and executed all the way through. 
you know, as a filmmaker, Ridley Scott is definitely kind of um, deferring to his screenwriter here. There's not a whole lot of Scott's usual style, although it does have some style, especially in terms of the editing and uh, and everything. It isn't what you would typically think of as a Ridley Scott movie, which is a lot of grandeur. Uh, it's very much a quieter film, um, and it's also extremely observant about its characters. And it's, it's just works, again, like clockwork um, here. It, it just fantastic piece of screenwriting, uh, fantastic piece of filmmaking, and certainly worthy of inclusion on a top 10 list. So there you have it. My number six is Matchstick Men from director Ridley Scott. Please seek this out. It's rentable. It's not streaming anywhere right now, but it's rentable on most platforms, and it's very much worth your time. Um, all right. Well, that's it for now. I will be coming back. You'll hear an ad. I'll come back to give you my picks for the best films of 2003, numbers 5 through 1. Stay tuned, y'all. Hello again, everybody. Uh, welcome back. And you just heard my picks for the best films of 2003, picks 10 through 6. And now I'm going to move on to the top 5. And at number 5, I have Best Picture Victor, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Um, once again, Peter Jackson's conclusion to his epic trilogy in which Frodo and Sam, played by Elijah Wood and Sean Astin, move closer to Mount Doom with Sauron's One Ring in order to destroy it. Meanwhile, Gandalf and Aragorn, played by uh, Ian McKellen and Viggo Mortensen, rally troops to fight back against his army. And, um, you know, it's a 200-minute epic in, in its theatrical form. It's, you know, 400 and... It's like a... I'm sorry, 400... Um, it's a 250 minute epic in its extended form on DVD, and it doesn't waste a minute of that. I think that this is actually one of those trilogies, unlike honestly his other trilogy, the Hobbit movies, where it really does earn every every inch of its length. And this is not the only time a Lord of the Rings movie will will appear on my top ten of a year. Um, you know, we, we still got two others. To discuss, and uh, but this one I think is certainly the biggest and most epic of them. It's the darkest. It's the most satisfying in terms of presenting us with a climax, particularly the gigantic, you know, forty-five minute long, massive action climax that is just one battle after another, essentially, but not in a way that pummels and and exhausts you in a way that you want it to end. In fact, you don't want it to end. Um, and when it does with this, with this drawn out, you know, epilogue, that's kind of been, it was kind of the, uh, the, uh, the target of mockery back in 2003, uh, with its quote unquote mini endings, which really just means that it fades out a lot and comes back to another scene. Um, I think that it is extremely, satisfying and everything that it's trying to do the visual effects still hold up the the action spectacle is enormous the character moments are all earned um the performances particularly from sean astin are note perfect all the way through i think that astin should have been nominated and maybe won best supporting actor it's certainly uh, he's good enough and um yeah it's it's a tremendous accomplishment 
on a technical level, on every level really, but on a technical level, particularly, I think that this one with, you know, the combination of its other, of its uh, predecessors really paved the way for a lot of technology in the future. Um, And if not technology, but I certainly think technology, uh, particularly when it comes to motion capture technology with the character of Gollum. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, this really did pave the way for a lot of future um, massive projects. I think that this, coupled with the Harry Potter franchise happening around the same time and after this trilogy, really paved the way for, for instance, the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be possible. Big interconnected stories like this that call back to each other or call forward to each other in elaborate ways. I think that they can be um, attributed to something like this. Um, And, you know, it was filmed all the way straight through over two and a half years of filming, um, all of which pay off. The money shows up on the screen, if you will. But I think it also really does um, take J.R.R. Tolkien's novel um, which was one novel, but split into three originally, um, takes that, expands the scope and scale of it in a way that is really, really uh, enormous and commonly challenging um, and just supremely satisfying. So, yeah, I, I love everything about this trilogy. I love everything about this movie. I'm not ready to say that it's my favorite of the three. Um, I will reveal which one is that uh, when I get to it. Um, I will reveal that my favorite extended edition is the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I think that that is taking all of those into um, consideration. That's the best Lord of the Rings movie. But uh, in terms of what I can say about the theatrical editions, I'll get to it when I get to it, what I think is the best. So, whatever the case, my number five is The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And I actually moved from one long-titled movie to another long-titled movie. At my number four spot, I have Peter Weir's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Now, this is a this one stars Russell Crowe as a British ship captain. Um, who basically pushes his crew to the limits when a formidable French war vessel, um, when they when they come into pursuit of a French war vessel uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, and this is set uh, sometime some somewhere outside South America, uh, and it also stars, interestingly enough, Lord of the Rings Billy Boyd, who plays Pip and Took uh, in that franchise. And also Paul Bettany, um, as well as faces like James Darcy um, and others. This one is a big sweeping epic, but it's also an interesting study of character. Um, And I think that that it gets to the intimacy of of ship life and the grunginess and the griminess of it. But it also takes time to uh, consider the people on the ship. It is sometimes a very quiet film. Sometimes it's big, loud, filled with action, 
all of it, you know, all of it surprising and well, well choreographed, well shot, um, well scored. Um, the script here is written, uh, partly by Weir and partly by John Colley, and it's adapted from the no- the novels by Patrick O'Brien. Takes uh, some of the plots of different novels and puts them all together, makes them this big tapestry, um, and it is just stunning to behold all the way through. Um, yeah, I, I adore this film, and on a technical level, man, it is just mind blowing. The cinematography here by Russell Carpenter, um, or I'm sorry, Russell Boyd, not Russell Carp- Carpenter, Russell Boyd is stunning this is a movie that could use a 4k transfer the editing is done by lee smith who has uh, famously worked with christopher nolan on a lot of his films and um yeah uh it's great great editing um also edited 1917 uh last year and uh is no stranger to big war-like productions um, this is a little bit of a smaller war film in terms of its scope than a lot of the other ones, but it is, um, it's still a war film. It still de- definitely does have sequences of combat between the boats. Um, the visual effects are all mostly, for the most part, uh, practical, and there's a lot of actual explosions going on here, which is always very, uh, very nice to see. And um, yeah, it's just a an overwhelming production, tremendously well put together and well acted. Crow is great here. This is a performance that's every bit on the level of his performances in stuff like Gladiator um, or Cinderella Man later on. He's he's fantastic in this role and uh, should have been nominated. This is one for which he should have been nominated, I think, um, and he wasn't, which I think is a uh, an oversight. So. Yeah, number four is Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World from director Peter Weir. This is a director that I really like. He's he's very prolific. He's also made stuff like The Truman Show, Dead Poet Society, Witness, uh, The Way Back, not the one from this year, but the one from 2010 with Ed Harris, Saoirse Ronan, Colin Farrell, and Jim Sturgis. Uh, also a very good movie and uh, certainly one worth checking out if you haven't seen it. So that is my number four. Moving on to my number three, another major um, tonal shift. This is a movie that if I didn't give my personal best actor uh, award to Nicolas Cage and Matchstick Men, it would go to the lead man and the leading man in this movie. This movie is pure joy. Uh, You know, I talk sometimes about the fact that I like to separate favorite from best sometimes. Um, it's very thin distinctions, but best can mean something that you would watch once and never again, just because of the subject matter or the treatment of it. Um, and that certainly goes for my number one film. When I get to that, I think it's the best film of the year, but my favorite film, the one that I go to most often, I have seen this dozens of times at this point is Richard Linklater's school of rock. Uh, this one stars Jack Black as Dewey Finn who's a washed-up musician. He's just been fired from his band for being too much of a showman, and he has no income to pay his rent. So his uh, his roommate, played by the film screenwriter Mike White, and the roommate's girlfriend, played by Sarah Silverman, tell him that he needs to pay up or he's out. 
by the end of this this next month. They're not going to float him anymore. And out of desperation, when a job offer comes for the roommate, who is a temporary, who is a uh, substitute teacher, he decides to impersonate him and take on the position of teacher at Horace Green Prep, a very prestigious school uh, headmastered by Rosalie uh, Rosalie Mullins, played by Joan Cusack. Um, And soon he realizes that the kids in his class are extremely, or well, fairly talented, if not exactly having channeled all that talent into something very useful, but they're very talented at music. And he knows music, so he decides that in order to get into the Battle of the Bands, he's going to train these kids, instead of teaching them their actual subjects, he's going to train these kids in how to be a rock band. And so this movie is driven by its rock soundtrack, uh, including a very highly publicized use of Led Zeppelin um, in one sequence, uh, their song... um, uh, Goodness me, I just lost the name of it. But anyway, uh, uh, they don't use their music a lot in in movies, and my brain just farted. I, I I'm so sorry. Um, but they they literally like called them uh, or like video chatted them or something, and tried to get sent them a video something like that to get this song in there. And it's just just the 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 joy of of seeing a likable character, you know, kind of kind of a, a a slacker if you will, but such a likable character teach these kids self-esteem is just so sweet and so nice and so good and so pure-hearted. And Jack Black's performance is just uh, a volcano of energy and and obvious improvisational ability and skill at that. And I I just is so delightful. And the music performances in here are heavily improvised, except for the final one, which was written by an actual band, this song called, um, uh, I forgot what the name of the song is, but this final performance when they finally reach battle of bands was actually written by a band that exists and yet the energy of it is pure Jack Black. It's pure Tenacious D, which is the the band uh, co-front, co co fronted by by Black in real life. And yeah, just his performance, the whole vibe of the movie is very much steeped in in, Link, in Linklater's own abilities to just run with a cast. Uh, particularly these kids who are just completely naturalistic. He's not trying to direct them in any way that they will be fake or phony. They are, you know, not great actors, so to speak. Although there is an early role for Miranda Cosgrove of iCarly, who's very good here. Um, you know, the other kids haven't really done all that much uh, since this. There's been a couple who've done some things, including Alicia Allen, who had a role in Are We There Yet? and its sequel, Are We Done Yet? Um, but they're great here, and it's because Linklater's able to just tell them, be yourself. Just be yourself. Don't be anything else. And it just is such a breath of fresh air every single time I watch this. I could watch it over and over again. I'm pretty sure there was a day where I watched it 
and then I watched it again later that day. Pretty sure that there was a day like that. At least once, maybe twice. I don't know. All I know is it is eminently watchable. It is super, super crafty. Visually, there's a lot of like long takes. Joan Cusack is great. I forgot to mention her. Um, Mike White and Sarah Silverman are having a lot of fun. I love this movie to death, and it's certainly worthy of being this high on the list. You know, is it some big prestige Oscar thing? No, but I think that easily Jack Black should have been nominated for this performance, especially because this was the year that Johnny Depp was nominated for Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. So there are no stranger to comic performances. Um, and I just, I love what Black is doing here on this movie, in this movie. And it's just a tremendous bit of energetic filmmaking at its best. I don't think that this one is streaming anywhere to my knowledge, but it is rentable. If you've, if you're one of the people who have been unfortunate enough to, to not see this movie yet, please change that. Please, please change that. You will not regret it. So my number three, School of Rock, Richard Linklater, one of the great modern American filmmakers, doing something kind of outside of his wheelhouse. It's a it's a major you know it's a major studio comedy, which he's done before, but he hadn't really done it before this movie. So it's a bit different than uh, than usual. So yeah, it is it's great. Jack Black enough is enough to to get it up to number three on my list. Now my number two, kind of another shift in tone. Um, I'm moving from a major studio comedy to a documentary. This is the highest ranked uh, uh, ranked documentary on my list. And it also is the longest title, I think, on my list. Uh, its full title is The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara. Now this one comes from legendary documentarian and interview master Errol Morris. Uh, who has done other movies like The Thin Blue Line, which I have seen, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, which I haven't. He also has a series on Netflix called Wormwood. I definitely plan on checking that out pretty soon. It's a mix of um, it's a mix of documentary and kind of reenactment. Um, anyway, this movie, though, is very unique also in terms of how it presented its material. It was filmed with something called the Interotron, which allows the subject to look at the camera, the filmmaker, and the audience all at once. The filmmaker wears it, and the subject looks at him, and by extension, us. And in this case, that's kind of a gift, because the story here follows the presidencies of John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, as well as the various political and, uh, and combat um, stories that come with them as seen through their secretary of defense, Robert McNamara, uh, who is a really interesting subject. He's also a generous subject. The entire perspective of this documentary is provided by McNamara. And that is the ultimate gift of this movie. Uh, we don't have Morris coming in as a, as a talking head or any other talking heads. We don't have Morris narrating portions of McNamara's life set against the, um, the, the archival footage that we have here. We have McNamara leading us through all of it. He is the one who provides perspective on his life, on his decisions, on his experiences, on these presidencies, and on these events in history. 
And that is probably the best thing that Morris could have done. Now, the only times that Morris chimes in, rather interestingly enough, are the times when he does ask a few questions. He's he's probably heard maybe about 15 minutes worth of this movie's length, but the questions that he asks are probing, they are deep, they are pointed, they are inquisitive, and they are hard-hitting. That means that McNamara has to be on his feet. The, you know, Sometimes he does decide not to answer, um, and Morris respects that. But it is an ultimate, it's the ultimate like achievement in ethical, journalistic, interview technique that I have seen in a documentary in a while. And that includes Morris's own film, The Thin Blue Line, which I very much liked. And I got to see more Morris. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of his stuff. In fact, those are the only two I have seen. I know that he's very popular for being hard-hitting in his questions, but I was unprepared for just how heartbreaking and fascinating this would be. I was absolutely glued to my seat in this thing. I My eyes were on the screen. I wasn't doing anything else. Um, and I was just, I don't think I ever paused it, honestly. I just watched this straight through. It is something that is truly magnetic, truly special, and it is certainly worth checking out. My number two film of 2003 is The Fog of War from director Errol Morris. If you want, if you're a history nut and you want an interesting perspective on history, especially if you like, you know, reading about McNamara or interviews with McNamara and you've not seen this, See it, see it, see it. I don't know where you can see it. I think it's rentable on Prime Video. Um, maybe not streaming on Prime Video, but it is rentable. So definitely see this one. Um, I have a DVD. That's how I watched it. But, you know, that's uh, that's neither here nor there. So that's my number two. Now, what is my number one? My number one of 2003 is probably the most troubling film. Well, not probably. Definitely the most troubling film on my list. Uh, it's one that you're going to have to prepare yourself mentally, emotionally, uh, physically, <laughs> whatever other ways. It's called Elephant. It comes from director Gus Van Zant. It's a very brief film. It's only about 75 minutes, 77 minutes roughly without the end credits. Uh, it was made in the early years after the Columbine high school shooting. And it's essentially made in response to that film. So you know exactly what you're getting yourself into um, when it comes to something like this. So the story follows several people, but perhaps most prominently, a pair of troubled teenagers played by Alex Frost and Eric Doolin as they plan a school shooting. Now, the entire movie takes place roughly over the course of 30 minutes before the shooting uh, rips through the lives of its students of the, this high school students, um, which occurs in the last 15 minutes of the film. The last 15 minutes is pure shooting. And then it kind of actually leaves you off in a, in a place of uncertainty, but the preceding about, you know, hour or so before that point is a twisting kind of nonlinear approach to several sets of students um, as they just kind of go by their daily routine, we follow them from behind in a series of 
extremely elaborate long shots, which, you know, kind of move. It's actually masterful camera movement. And it's a major reason why this is my number one, because this thing is a tremendous achievement in craft. Um, it moves from like behind the characters for the most part, but it doesn't just do that. It switches between characters. It moves to, it moves at the side of them. It moves around them. It moves underneath their vantage point. It moves over their vantage point. There is not one specific, uh, almost ever one specific camera movement used in this movie. It is a masterpiece of camera movement and perspective. And that perspective also is about its sympathetic perspective because primarily of these students, we follow one named John played by John Robinson, uh, who is the one that ends up warning a lot of people outside the school about what he thinks might occur when he comes across these two students. And, uh, then you also follow some of these other students, um, a girl played by, uh, well, I'm not going to use the, the actor's names. I honestly can't remember them, but, um, uh, some of these other students, there's, there's a girl who isn't, uh, super, um, f uh, who, who isn't super confident in her physical appearance. So she's avoiding gym class. There's a couple there's, uh, who are just, you know, kind of meeting up and, and, uh, maybe trying to get out for the day, uh, early. And there's three girls who are getting together to gossip and to throw up the food that they just ate and to squabble about boys. And it just really is a fly on the wall of these kids' days, these kids' day until it all turns to tragedy, avoidable, um, avoidable tragedy. And what is also really important is that it doesn't scapegoat the boys in question. It doesn't. It, there's three moments in this movie in which uh, director Gun Gus Van Zant uh, utilizes some of the things that have been used as scapegoated reasons for, uh, for school shootings, such as violent video games in, uh, and the main kid plays a video game in which you shoot, um, human avatars in the back, not in the front. That doesn't seem to be a feature. And that's important to note. Um, that doesn't seem to be a feature. And then you also have them, you know, watching a Nazi documentary with essentially no emotion or interest in the thing. Uh, you know, just wondering, oh, is that Hitler? You know, kind of asking questions like that. And um, you also have a scene where uh, they, uh, where the main one, uh, played by Alex Frost, is is the victim of spitballing from from bullies. And you know, I guess also kind of a fourth moment is the fact that they are able to go on and buy a gun with ease from a from an online store, and it just arrives at their house, and that's how they're able to to get all this stuff. You know, that kind of thing is all these things are used as a scapegoat when really we can't really understand why, how, or why, just to repeat that word, um, these things happen. They are, uh, there really is no rationale for them. Thus, there's really no, re there's no way we can justify looking for a reason. And this movie understands that. Um, all it does is it simply watches as something horrible happens. And while that might might seem like it's empty voyeurism, I think it's very much not, just because uh, it is trying to connect itself to the Columbine High School shooting, and that's something that was a uh, a point of contention for a lot of people when it came out. You know, these 
These two are clearly modeled after the architects of that shooting, Dylan Klebold and, Aaron, and Eric Harris, but they're also very different. There's a, there's a final scene shared between them that almost certainly did not happen uh, between the two, the, the two real boys, uh, Klebold and Harris, when you know law enforcement became involved in that uh, event. And um, uh, clearly the entire final five minutes is a very different kind of perspective on one of these shootings than we've gotten before, uh, either in real life, you know, journalism um, or in movies of this sort. Um, and I think that it is in just incredibly uh, concise storytelling as a, as a piece of storytelling. I think that it is really well, I mean, it's kind of weird to call it this, but it is really well plotted. Um, just in terms of how it understands every single movement that these characters make. It was clearly a fairly complex shooting process because of that. Yeah, uh, this is my number one film, Elephant. Uh, certainly, if you can st- if you can stomach this kind of thing, and right now, I don't know if you'd want to, but if you can, certainly worth checking out. So there we have it. Uh, now a quick recap of my list from 10 to 1. Number 10, I had Clint Eastwood's Mystic River. Number nine, American Splendor from directors Sherry Springer, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini. Number eight, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. Number six, Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. Number five, uh, Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. At number four, Peter Weir's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. At number three, Richard Linklater's School of Rock. At number two, Errol Morris's The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara. And number one, Gus Van Zandt's Elephant. And there you have it, my picks for the best films of 2003. Uh, thank you for listening. I will be back uh, tomorrow night as of this recording with another episode with my friend Chad talking about the, the best films of 2002. Remember to subscribe, like this podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Real Joel Copling. You can find me on Letterboxd if you search my name. You guys have been great. Um, I hope that you're all well out there and have a safe, uh, have a safe May. So, uh, guys, see you later.